0: this podcast details true crime cases it contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence it is not intended for children listener discretion is advised thank you for joining me for today's episode of once upon a crime this month i'll be detailing a case of multiple murder over a three-part mini-series Over three years in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Northern California residents were terrorized by a series of random murders that took place on hiking trails in state parks, national forests, and coastal lands, casting a dark shadow across what had formerly been some of the most serene, beautiful, and peaceful landmarks in the state. One after another, bodies of women began turning up on hiking trails in secluded areas in and around San Francisco, Santa Cruz, and Marin counties. At first, no one suspected that the murders had been committed by just one person. The term serial killer was still a foreign concept to most Americans. The idea of one person committing a series of murders over a prolonged amount of time, which is how we now generally understand the term, hadn't yet taken hold, but soon would. In California, serial killers seemed to proliferate in the 1970s and 80s. Reports about these murders were splashed across headlines and the suspected killers were given names like the co-ed killer, the night stalker, and the hillside strangler, before they were identified and brought to justice. Beginning in 1979, visitors to California's hiking trails began going missing. When it was discovered that they'd been murdered and that these crimes may be linked, the suspect became known as the trailside killer. Once popular hiking trails, campsites, and beaches emptied out, as visitors became fearful of becoming the killer's next victims. This is part one of this month's miniseries, The Trailside Killer. Lois DeAndradi was a petite, dark-haired woman in her early 30s in the year 1960. She worked as a secretary at a San Francisco advertising firm and lived with three other single women who all shared an apartment in the city. On July 12 of that year, she was on her way to the bus stop headed to her job. It was just after 8 a.m. A green sedan pulled over alongside her and slowed. She heard someone calling to her and looked inside the car to see 30-year-old David Carpenter, an acquaintance, offering her a ride. Lois had known Carpenter for a couple of years. He had worked as a ship's purser, and his company, Pacific Far East Lines, was a client of the advertising firm where Lois worked as a secretary. David Carpenter was a bit of an odd duck, Lois thought. He enjoyed coming into the office and striking up flirtatious conversations with females in the office, although he had a significant speech impediment, frequently stuttering over his words. And even with those who didn't know him well, he often shared personal details about himself and his life making conversations awkward. Carpenter's father, Elwood, had been the ad company's mail carrier for years, and most of the employees were acquainted with him as well. David Carpenter shared terrible stories about abuse and ridicule he'd received from both his mother and father as a child. Lois and the others felt badly for him if it was true that he'd had such a terrible upbringing, but it was still awkward to listen to such personal details about someone who was merely an acquaintance. Still, Lois said she and most of her coworkers liked David Carpenter well enough. Carpenter was married, and the previous year, he and his wife had invited Lois to their home for dinner. It had been Lois' 31st birthday that week, and they had surprised her with the birthday cake baked by Ellen. On that July morning, when Carpenter offered Lois a ride, she thanked him but declined. Carpenter then said that his wife was visiting a friend at the Presidio the nearby military base that sat just beyond the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge. Ellen was pregnant with the couple's third child the last time Lois saw her, and Carpenter now urged her to come and see the new baby. He promised he'd take her to Ellen for a quick visit and then drive her to work in plenty of time. Lois agreed and got into the car. Carpenter began talking to her in a friendly way as he drove toward the Presidio. He said his wife would be excited to see her and told her a little about the new baby. As they reached the grounds of the base, to Lois it appeared as if Carpenter was driving in circles. She asked him where Ellen was staying, and he answered that he had first driven to the wrong street, but was sure he could locate the place. Lois reminded him that she really was in a hurry and didn't wish to be late for her job. He mumbled something and continued to drive. It suddenly dawned on Ellen that Carpenter's speech had been completely without any hint of a stammer since he'd pulled her over to offer her a ride. That was surprising, she thought. Before she could process this information, she realized that Carpenter was now driving away from the more populated area of the Presidio and towards its outskirts and down a road surrounded by a wooded area. He pulled the car over on the isolated road near a warehouse that appeared to be unoccupied. Scared now, Lois flung the passenger door open the minute the car came to a complete stop. She jumped out and tried to run. Carpenter called after her, "'What's wrong? Where are you going?' before running after her. Easily overtaking her, he dragged her back to the car. He pushed her into the back seat and straddled her so she couldn't move. He then brandished a knife and said he didn't want to kill her, but would if she screamed. Producing a piece of clothesline, he began to try to tie her hands, but Lois started to fight back. Carpenter again warned her not to fight him or scream. Lois pleaded with him now to stop, saying, "'Why are you doing this, David? We're friends.' Carpenter answered, "'I have this funny quirk that needs to be satisfied.' Terrified and unable to move, Lois watched as Carpenter pulled another item out from beneath the seat—a claw hammer. But moments earlier, when Carpenter drove Lois toward the deserted road, a military policeman patrolling the area noticed his car from a distance— Knowing an abandoned building was all that stood beyond there, the MP decided to check things out to determine if the driver was up to no good or simply lost. Lois, struggling inside the car, saw movement out of the corner of her eye. A car was coming. Using all her strength, she reached out to try and honk the car's horn. Carpenter raised the knife that was clutched in his other hand. Lois instinctively reached out to deflect the blade and was cut across the fingers of her right hand. With her left hand, she was able to turn the door handle and push it open. She fell out onto the pavement. By some miracle, she landed in a crouching position. Once she realized her feet had hit the ground, she began to run, screaming for help. Carpenter ran after her with the claw hammer raised over his head. Catching up to Lois, he swung it down toward her. She once again raised her arm to deflect the blow, and the hammer came down, striking and shattering her wristwatch. She continued to scream. The MP, Wayne Hicks, had parked his vehicle and as he got out heard a woman screaming. He peered down an incline in the road and saw the car there. The woman continued to shriek but could not see her behind the car. Hicks placed his hand on his gun holster and with his nightstick raised, hurried down toward the vehicle. As the MP approached, he saw Carpenter kneeling on top of Lois, holding her in place. He was swinging a hammer down onto her head. Hicks yelled at Carpenter to stop and move away from the woman as he rushed toward the attacker. Still, Carpenter continued to hit Lois. Finally, as the MP was almost upon him, Carpenter moved off the woman and began swinging at the officer, striking him once in the arm with the hammer. Hicks pointed his gun at Carpenter and commanded him to drop his weapon for the second time. Carpenter finally dropped the hammer onto the ground. The officer grabbed Carpenter and moved him toward his police vehicle as he radioed for help. He requested emergency medical aid to be dispatched for Lois. Lois was conscious, but couldn't focus her vision and had no recall of how many times she'd been struck. After the first blow, everything was a blur. Hicks heard a sound and then felt a stinging burn at the side of his face. Carpenter had retrieved a pen type gun from his pocket that could fire off a single bullet with a gas charge. The bullet had missed but the gas had burned the officer as it whizzed past him. Carpenter turned to run, and the officer fired off one shot from his service revolver. It missed, but as Carpenter began running, Hicks fired two more in his direction, hitting him in his stomach and leg. Carpenter fell, and as he hit the ground, the officer heard him stammer out, Don't shoot! You've hit me! Lois was rushed to the hospital and into the emergency room. She had been hit six times with the hammer and suffered a fractured skull. She underwent emergency brain surgery and would survive, but the tendons on two of the fingers of her right hand had been cut so deeply they could not be saved. Carpenter was also taken to the hospital and stabilized before being transferred to the San Quentin Prison Hospital where he was treated for his bullet wounds. Once he recovered, he was booked into the San Francisco City Jail. He was charged with assault with attempt to commit murder. Carpenter claimed that he didn't remember anything about the attack. His bail was set at $25,000. Lois DeAndrade recovered from her injuries and later that year married Frank Rinna. In 1963, she gave birth to a daughter named Lisa. Lisa Rinna would become an actress most known for her roles in the soap opera Days of Our Lives and the hit television series Melrose Place. More recently, she has made a name for herself in reality television, starring in a season of Celebrity Apprentice and Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Last summer, her mother, Lois, celebrated her 92nd birthday. Lois D'Andrade had no idea about how dangerous David Carpenter was until it was too late. On the surface, he appeared to be a non threatening, prematurely balding man with a goofy, crooked tooth smile who told awkward jokes and had difficulty communicating without stuttering over his words. But David Carpenter had a record as a sexual predator from the time he was a preteen. David Joseph Carpenter was born on May 6, 1930, in Palo Alto, California. He was the oldest child of Elwood Ashley Carpenter and Frances Elizabeth Carpenter. Elwood had been previously married, and had a son named William, but Elwood's ex-wife had moved to Idaho taking her son with her after the divorce. Elwood, seven years older than his second wife, provided for his family as a postal worker. Later, he would manage an express shipping business. He was a heavy drinker and prone to angry outbursts while drunk. But David's mother was even more intimidating than her husband. Francis Carpenter was described as unloving, inflexible, and domineering. She bullied her husband, and they would often get into loud screaming matches that sometimes ended in physical fights. The Carpenter's daughter, Anne, was born four years after David. Both his half-brother, William, and his younger sister were favored over David. It was said that his parents and siblings were, quote, not fond of him at all. When this began is unclear, but several reasons are cited for David Carpenter becoming an outcast in his school, his neighborhood, and even in his own home. Carpenter's speech impediment may have presented itself by the time he was seven years old. He had a difficult time communicating without tripping over his words, and his tendency to stutter appeared to frustrate his parents greatly. It's also been reported that his family was ashamed of his speech impediment, so it's surprising that Francis and Elwood never sought out professional help for their son. Instead, to reduce the bullying by other children, His mother forbid him to play with others, thereby making him even more of an outcast with his peers. He was a frequent target of bullies at school who made fun of his speech impediment, the way he dressed, and the thick glasses he wore. His mother insisted on dressing him in short pants and fancy jackets, and also to take violin and ballet lessons. But David also contributed to his trouble fitting in with his classmates by becoming a teacher's pet who snitched on the other children. His attempts to impress his classmates by being cruel to animals was only met with scorn and further solidified his reputation as, quote, the class weirdo. Incidentally, David Carpenter exhibited at least two out of the three characteristics that make up what's known as the McDonald Triad, or more commonly, the homicidal triad. This theory, first proposed by psychiatrist J.M. McDonald, linked three specific behaviors he'd found to be present during childhood that he associated with later predatory behavior. These behaviors were cruelty to animals, chronic bedwetting past a certain age, and obsession with fire setting. Carpenter had a history of cruelty to animals as a child and was a chronic bedwetter into his early teens. Early FBI profilers cited this theory as valid in the research they conducted regarding serial killers. The homicidal triad theory, however, has met with some skepticism in more recent studies. It's now more widely believed that these behaviors are commonly linked to neglect, cruelty, or abuse of children by their parents or caretakers. It is said then that it is this trauma experienced during childhood that may create the link to homicidal behavior later on. It was common knowledge that David was subjected to beatings at home, mostly at the hands of his mother. He would be absent for several days and return to school covered in bruises. In one class picture taken of David, he has a black eye. Some kids in the neighborhood felt sorry for him at times, but according to at least one of his classmates, he was a difficult person to like or befriend. Quote, There was just something about David that made him difficult to be around, the classmate said. David Carpenter did not have many friends in school and spent most of his time alone or playing chess with neighborhood adults. His only friends were a few girls, but he succeeded in driving them away with his cruel pranks and beginning at a young age by making aggressive sexual advances. David began acting out rebelliously and starting at the age of 12, had a record of juvenile offenses. What these were exactly is unknown since juvenile records are sealed and not made public. However, we can assume by looking at his later criminal behavior that there was likely breaking and entering and petty theft charges early on. By the age of 14, David Carpenter would be facing more serious charges. He was committed to the Napa State Hospital on five charges of sexual offenses, the details of which have not been revealed. Carpenter was frequently absent from school, often just wandering around the city or sometimes running away from home. He was expelled from Balboa High School after a period of truancy in the 10th grade, after which he dropped out of school altogether. The first detailed record of Carpenter's criminal behavior began at age 17. In 1947, he was sentenced to a California Youth Authority facility for molesting two children. Carpenter had encountered an eight-year-old boy and a three-year-old girl in a park and forced them into a bathroom. He threatened them with a knife and molested them. His sentence for this crime required him to remain locked up until he turned 18. He was then released in compliance with the sentencing laws that pertain to juvenile offenders at that time. He was given a 90-day assessment at Napa Valley State Hospital before his scheduled date of release and was deemed fit for parole in December of 1948. Legal filings later revealed that Carpenter had first been placed into the juvenile system at the age of eight or nine. During his time incarcerated at CYA, Carpenter told a youth authority psychiatrist that at age eight, he had attempted to molest a child. If true, this most likely accounts for the early intervention by the juvenile justice system. During his time locked up in the youth facility, Carpenter liked to brag to others about raping girls during his teens. Carpenter's nonstop talking and frequent oversharing about his abusive childhood and his criminal exploits would continue throughout his life, and later would be used against him in court. Carpenter escaped from the youth authority facility several times. He often hid out in the Santa Cruz Mountains and committed so many burglaries in the area that residents began asking authorities to warn them each time he escaped. Carpenter was very familiar with the Santa Cruz area. His family had owned a cabin near Boulder Creek, and at the age of 15, he had run away from home and hid there before being found and returned. Twenty years later, that cabin would become the location of one of Carpenter's crimes. In 1950, David Carpenter was free and working as a clerk and messenger for a San Francisco company. He was living with his parents again at his childhood home, located at 38 Sussex Street. Now an adult, Carpenter stood at 5'10'' tall and weighed 160 pounds. His teeth had never been straightened and overlapped one another in all directions. His eyes behind his thick glasses were hazel, but often appeared much darker. He kept his brown hair in a short-cropped military-style haircut. That summer, 20-year-old Carpenter offered a teenaged acquaintance a ride home. At the time, his parents were away on vacation, and he had the house to himself. While driving her home, Carpenter told the girl he needed to make a quick stop at his house. When they arrived, he persuaded her to come in with him and wait inside. Once inside the home, Carpenter began making sexual advances towards her. She wasn't interested, but he became more aggressive. She had to lock herself into the bathroom and escape out of a window to get away. She reported the incident to the police. Carpenter was charged with the attempted sexual assault of a minor. He pled not guilty and at the conclusion of his trial was acquitted. In 1952, Carpenter began working for Pacific Far East Lines as a purser trainee on both passenger ships and freighters. A ship's purser is tasked with various duties from keeping accounts to seeing to the comfort and well-being of passengers. He would advance to clerk in charge of military shipments during his time with the company. In 1955, Carpenter, now 25, wed 19-year-old Ellen May Heatley. He'd met the teen in the early 1950s when he was pursuing her older sister, Wilhelmina. When the elder Heatley sister turned him down, he turned his interest to young Ellen. Ellen gave birth to their first child, Michael, just 10 months after the couple wed. Two years later, their first daughter, Gabrielle, was born. When they were expecting their third child, Cersei Ann, they bought a home in the coastal town of Pacifica, just south of San Francisco. Carpenter would complain that his marriage to Ellen was boring and said he only stayed married because he had three children. Ellen would later report that her husband would frequently grow moody and had a violent temper. She said the only thing that calmed him down was sex. Carpenter would insist on having sex at least three times per night. Ellen also said that after flying into a violent rage, her husband would claim he didn't remember what he'd done, the same claim he made in court after attempting to assault and murder Lois D'Andrade. For the attack on Lois, Carpenter was charged with assault with attempt to commit murder and assault with a deadly weapon. An additional charge of assault with a deadly weapon was leveled against him for shooting at the police officer. On October 31, 1960, Carpenter pled guilty to one count of assault with a deadly weapon on Lois. While awaiting trial, he was assessed by a court-appointed psychiatrist who declared him competent to stand trial. His attorney presented a plea deal to the court. Carpenter would plead guilty to counts three and four if count one was dismissed, the assault with intent to murder charge. The judge agreed to the plea, but ordered Carpenter, who was still saying he didn't remember anything about the attack, to undergo a 90-day psychiatric evaluation first. He came before the judge again in March 1961. This time, he said he remembered what happened only after his memory was triggered by watching the movie Psycho, where he'd heard the term sociopathic personality disturbance. Carpenter was sentenced to 14 years. Because the crime had taken place on federal property, he was sent to the federal prison at McNeil Island, Washington. Ellen Carpenter filed for divorce, which was granted in 1962. He was ordered to pay $1 a month for child support and $1 per month in alimony. Ellen kept the house and all marital property. She also filed a restraining order forbidding her ex-husband from contacting her or the children. While Carpenter was serving his sentence for the attack on Lois D'Andrade, he kept changing his story. He first said that he was having an affair with Lois and that the incident had been a, quote, lover's quarrel. Then before his first parole hearing in 1964, his excuse was simply that he had, quote, just snapped. Before the board once more in 1966, he once again claimed that he and Lois were having an affair. Finally, during his last interview, he blamed the victim, saying that Lois had stabbed him first. Although never admitting responsibility for his crime, Carpenter was released on April 7, 1969, after serving nine years, the minimum sentence required before he could be released. The board had no choice but to release him on probation, as he had had no infractions while in prison. In 1969, David Carpenter was released from prison after serving nine years for attacking and nearly killing Lois D'Andrade. As a condition of his probation, he was required to attend group therapy classes and report to his probation officer regularly. The same year he was released, he met a woman named Helen. They married on August 8th of that year, and by December, Carpenter would stop reporting to his probation officer. His term of probation was not set to expire for another four years. The marriage did not last long before Carpenter was served with divorce papers for the second time. On January 27, 1970, just nine months after being released from prison, Carpenter was in the Santa Cruz, California area when he saw a woman driving down the interstate highway. He began following her, and when she reached the secluded area of the highway, he used his car to force her off the road. Getting out of his car, he approached 19-year-old Cheryl Lynn Smith, as she walked to the rear of her vehicle to check for damage. He began apologizing to her for the accident, but as he got closer, pulled out a knife. He told Cheryl he was going to rape her and that he would kill her if she tried to scream. He then dragged her off the road and up a hillside. Cheryl tried to back away from her attacker and began sliding down the embankment. Carpenter slashed at her with the knife, cutting her hands and arms. As the terrified woman lay bleeding on the ground begging for her attacker to let her go, Carpenter's demeanor suddenly changed. He now tried to help Cheryl, wrapping her in his coat and leading her back to her car. He then offered to follow her home and help her bandage her wounds in exchange for her promise not to call the police. Cheryl declined his offer, jumped in the car, and drove off. He continued following in his car from a distance, and she was able to write down his license plate number. Still being followed by her attacker, Cheryl drove into the parking lot of a busy hotel, at which time Carpenter drove away. He didn't stop until he reached his home in San Francisco, where he packed a bag to flee. But before he could leave the house, police arrived, having tracked him down through the reported license plate number. Carpenter ran out of the back door and walked all the way to Daly City, about a ninety minute journey by foot. There he broke into a deserted house where he camped out for the night. The next day, he hitchhiked back to Santa Cruz. Carpenter broke into a house occupied by a young mother with two small children, ages seven and three. When the woman returned home from a shopping trip, she and the children were met by Carpenter, who was standing in the living room holding a shotgun. He threatened the woman and then sent the two boys to their room. Carpenter forced the woman to drive him to an empty cabin near Henry Cowell State Park, the cabin that once had been owned by his parents. He forced the woman inside and raped her. Afterward, he apologized as he drove her back to her house, saying, I'm sick. I need help. I'm lonely. Carpenter then stole her car and drove off. This was just the beginning of Carpenter's crime spree. He next drove to Daly City, where early the next morning, he confronted 25-year-old Sharon O'Donnell in the parking garage of her apartment building. He forced Sharon into the stolen vehicle and tied her hands together. Carpenter began removing the license plates from Sharon's car and transferring them onto the stolen vehicle. While he was occupied, Sharon was able to untie herself and run out of the garage. Carpenter now altered his plan, leaving the stolen vehicle behind and driving off in Sharon's car. He drove it 140 miles east to Calaveras County, where he abandoned it. He hid in the woods for four days. Then on February 3rd, a cleaning woman was confronted by Carpenter as she opened the back door of her employer's home. Pointing a gun at her, Carpenter forced her back into the house where he tied her to a bed and stole all the money in her purse, about $3, before driving off in her car. Forty-five minutes later, he reached Angel's Camp, a small town in Calaveras County. He broke into the home of a 25-year-old mother who was home alone with her infant son. Carpenter forced her to drive him to a secluded campsite where he had been hiding out. He raped the young mother and then made her drive him to the outskirts of Oakdale, a town about 45 minutes south of Angel's Camp. During the drive, he played with the woman's baby boy, bouncing him on his knee. After having the woman drop him off on the side of the road, Carpenter hitchhiked to the town of Modesto, where he entered a bus depot and purchased a ticket out of town. An all-points bulletin had already been put out for Carpenter, and upon recognizing the wanted man's description, a bus terminal employee notified the sheriff's department. Deputies were dispatched to the bus station and Carpenter was arrested and taken to the Calaveras County Jail. His crime spree now halted. Carpenter remained in jail awaiting trial. On April 27, 1970, he led a group of inmates in an escape. They cut through their cell bars and escaped through a skylight. Once again, hiding out in the woods, Carpenter regaled the others with tales of his crimes. He also claimed that he was the infamous Zodiac Killer, who was responsible for shooting and killing or seriously injuring seven people around Northern California between 1968 and 1969 and was still unidentified. Incidentally, Carpenter would later be investigated as a suspect in the Zodiac murders, but was quickly ruled out when it was determined that he had been in prison during much of the time that the Zodiac Killer was active. Bloodhounds quickly tracked down the escapees, and they were returned to jail. On May 1, 1970, Carper was convicted of two counts of armed robbery, one count of kidnapping, one count of auto theft, and prison escape. He was sentenced to five years to life on two of the counts. He also received an additional sentence of one year to 25 years. His sentences were to run consecutively. At his hearing, the judge stated that Carpenter was, quote, extremely dangerous and should be incarcerated for a substantial period of time and sent him to the state prison medical facility in Vacaville for evaluation, the same facility where serial killer Edmund Kemper would be incarcerated after his arrest three years later. A month later, Carpenter was transferred to Folsom Prison, but he still faced charges in Santa Cruz County. Prosecutors in that county charged him with assault with intent to commit rape, against Cheryl Lynn Smith, and rape, robbery, and car theft by force of the mother of two. On October 5th, Carpenter pled guilty to kidnapping, rape, and burglary, but stipulated that as a condition of his plea, the last two charges be entered as first-degree burglary. Carpenter was terrified of being labeled a sexual predator, saying it would make him a target by other inmates. This stipulation was granted by the court, and Carpenter was sent to San Quentin Prison to begin serving his sentence. David Carpenter only served a short time at San Quentin before being transferred once again to Vacaville for evaluation and treatment for psychological issues. While there, he was tested and assessed as having a personality disorder and, quote, hostility toward women that doctors attributed mainly to abusive treatment by his mother. He was given a position working in the facility's administrative offices. He took part in therapy groups and, in 1975, would write a letter to his prison psychotherapist saying that the therapy had helped him to understand his, quote, sexual hang-ups. He further stated, quote, I do not have any hostility toward women anymore, nor will I ever rape another woman or use force against them, because I feel adequate now and do not suffer from the stresses and strains that I have for these past many years, end quote. Carpenter's son Michael reconnected with his paternal grandparents while his father was in prison. Michael noted that his grandparents, Francis and Elwood, displayed no pictures of his father in their home and never spoke of him. Michael had last seen his father when he was only a toddler. Now at age 17, he began to feel sympathy for him, and the following year when he reached the age of 18 visited his father in prison carpenter began corresponding with his son regularly after this visit in 1977 he was paroled from Vacaville after serving 7 years but still had to serve time in federal prison for violating the terms of his 1960 assault conviction he was sent to McNeil Island Washington in 1978 he was transferred once again to Lompoc Federal Penitentiary. There he associated with another inmate, a convicted bank robber, Shane Williams, who was serving a six-year sentence. Williams will factor into this story later. Carpenter also began corresponding with a pen pal named Molly Jo Purnell. Molly would allow Carpenter to use her address to receive packages that he asked her to hold for him until his release. On May 21, 1979, Carpenter was released from federal prison to a San Francisco halfway house. His parole was scheduled to run for approximately three years and end in 1982. You would probably assume that a violent offender like David Carpenter would be put under strict supervision after serving time for multiple violent crimes, including rape. However, when he was released, Carpenter was technically under federal, not state, supervision. Federal authorities would later state they had no jurisdiction over state laws, so were not responsible for giving instructions to paroled inmates on how to comply with these laws, such as sex offender registry. Carpenter was required to report to a federal probation officer. If he had been paroled under state jurisdiction, he would have been required to register as a sex offender and bring proof that he had done so to his state parole officer. The California Department of Corrections would then have sent out notices to local police departments where he worked or resided to inform them of his status. None of this happened in Carpenter's case. Even if it had, a 1977 study showed that most state's sex offender registry programs were almost completely voluntary, and 94% of local police agencies failed to charge a single sex offender with failure to comply. Simply stated, David Carpenter, a known sexual offender and violent felon, slipped under the radar. He was free to live or work anywhere he chose, without community members or law enforcement being warned about the danger he presented. This loophole in the law would allow Carpenter to not only continue to prey on victims in Northern California, but escalate his crimes to an extremely lethal and terrifying level. That story continues in Part 2 of The Trailside Killer, next week on Once Upon a Crime. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Be sure to follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss part two next week. If you'd like to get all new episodes early and without ads, you can join our Patreon. Memberships start at just $2 per month. Go to patreon.com slash Crime to find out more and join. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Vernon. Original music and final sound mix by Aaron Goldberg. For more information about the podcast and the team, go to truecrimepodcast.com. There you can also find all sponsor information, including discount codes. Thanks once again for listening, and until next time, be good to one another.